Okay. There you go. Okay, here it is. Okay. So I so said we're going to start in uh, Genesis chapter 5, verses 28, and read through 6, uh, 8. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. This section will pose to us many thorny issues, some big issues that um, really can, can be confusing as we start to look at who are the Nephilim, who are the sons of God, and what does it mean that the Lord regretted, regretted that he had made man. So I think last week Stan was talking about common grace and special grace. And what we're about to see is God is going to suspend common grace. That's the first thing that we should understand is that we are not to presume that God's common grace will always be in the earth. He has to suspend it to do what he is about to do, right? He's not going to show a general goodness to men because they have reached the height of their evil state, their evil position, so what we st why we started in chapter 5 was to show that there was already a longing for the curse to be lifted. That happened in Genesis 3, right? When man was sent out into the garden and he was told that he was going to be cursed of the toil of his hand, and that curse was real. It was already burdening all the people from Adam up to Noah, and the way that Genesis is kind of divided, it's divided in these words called the generations of, or in the Hebrew, it's called toledot. And so there it is telling us that we are to kind of measure the, the uh, lifespan between the people that are born. The first toledot was generations of the heavens and the earth. Then the toledot was of Adam. Now we're coming into the generations of Noah. And so Noah 
comes on the scene, okay, comes on the scene in the moment that all of humanity is writhing to the zenith of its depravity, of its evil. We see that here that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Who do we think the sons of God are? Anyone have any guesses? That was, that's a tough one. And Job, of course, we hear that uh, what happens is that God calls the sons of God come before him, right? And he's speaking of the angels. And so there are many, there are three ways that theologians have understood this passage. And so I'm not going to stake a ground on either one. I'm just going to tell you what three uh, ways that you can see who the sons of God are. The first star that we're talking about, the sons of Seth, the line of Seth, and they're marrying the daughters of mankind of the line of Cain. So there's intermingling of marriage. The second viewpoint would be that there are giants. There are these uh, powerful kings that are in the land, and they're marrying the daughters of the earth and mixing and creating this race called Nephilim. Then the third, which is the earliest, the earliest instruction about it was that it was angels. It was demonic angels that were marrying the daughters of the earth. And they were creating this supernatural race called Nephilim. In the Reformed thinking, all three have been acceptable. All three have been acceptable. And so, but what we can clearly see here is that a race or a line in which God was setting apart from himself was being corrupted. I think we can all agree to that, okay? That even if we are not necessarily taking a stake one way or the other, I think there's scriptural evidence. Actually, I'll tell you that the scriptural evidence or the linguistic evidence is stronger for the third than any other of the two. Because the language of the Bible actually speaks in that language about it being more of the sons of God being angels that are intermingling with humans, with humanity. But either way, what we need to understand is that God had always had a line, right? He had separated a line from the beginning, okay? The serpent's line and the line of the living, that Eve was going to be the mother of the living. And then when Cain and Abel comes, if you remember the uh, lessons I'm sure that Stan brought out, is that Cain and Abel were the signs of those two lines. And then Abel gets squashed out, right? He gets murdered. And if you think about what took place on Genesis 3.15, what we call the Proto-Angelion, the first gospel, where it tells the serpent that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. That's the whole tension that is always building throughout Genesis, is that the seed of the woman is going up against the seed of Satan, right? The seed of the serpent, the one who isn't being set apart to produce offsprings for God, but it's one to go against God, to be the enemy against God. And there we see a constant movement of humanity and Satan almost co in, in conjunction with each other to, to burn out, to, uh, to eliminate the line of the woman, because that's how salvation is going to come. And so there we hear 
in this passage in 528, you can hear that same language about the curse, that there's going to be relief that is going to come. And so the reason why people, uh, theologians, focus so much on the sons of God is because what is moving to eliminate or extinguish the line of God's people? Is it, satan- is it demonic activity? Is it sin? And I would say, yes, the answer is all the above, right? There are enemies to the church, as we kind of spoke about in the sermon last week, that there are enemies to the church that are trying to wipe out that line because that's how the promise will come, is through the line of the woman, right? Through the line, the seed of the woman, Satan's devices, everything that he's trying to accomplish will be defeated, okay? And we're actually going to see a great picture here, what's called uh, getting a foretaste of the eschaton. What's going to happen in the end, okay? That God's judgment is going to come because the wickedness of man is going to invite the judgment of God, okay? That should be our first point in the bulletin, that the wickedness of man invites the judgment of God. And the second point is that God's grace brings hope brings hope. Here the Moses, yep, sorry. I, I'm sorry. Okay. The judgment of God or invites God's judgment. And it's my bad for not having it in the bulletin. Okay. And God's grace brings hope. That's how you can kind of book in what's taking place here. But you see almost a very poetic approach here by Moses that you don't get the hopeful presentation uh, is not as robust as the description of the wickedness of man because the wickedness of man has reached its height, okay? As man has progressed from the garden and has populated the world, they populated the world to move in an evil, a continual evil progression, And where we see that most apparent is in the intermixture or the defiling of the marriage covenant. That's what is at at the heart of this passage. That it's saying that what God is upset about is that the marriage covenant, which is going to be the zenith, it's the height of all creation. If you look at it in the garden, marriage is at the front and center because that's how the world is to be populated. If you look at the end in Revelation, what takes place? The marriage feast of the Lamb. Because marriage is supposed to be at the center of all of creation. That is what God has given to give the the greatest sign of the covenant of his love and his grace. That's pretty powerful, especially in the time and the age that we live in. And seeing how marriage is constantly distorted and how there's an attack upon gender. Well, there's a reason for that. It's trying to squash and extinguish the line of the woman. Where grace and deliverance and salvation would come. And so here we see the leading up. Leading up to what will come in Noah's Ark. We're not going to speak about that tonight, but we'll have a foretaste 
of it as we go forward. But what we're going to look at is how mankind, they begin to multiply in the face of the land. They're, they are to do what God has commanded them to do, right? To go and be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Fill the earth. But they're to fill the earth in a way to glorify God. But the way that the world is being multiplied and that the, the uh, humanity is multiplying is in a way that the Bible and that God is not pleased with. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So there was obviously clearly lanes, <laughs> lanes that each side was supposed to stay in. They were not supposed to come out of one of those lanes or the other. They were supposed to stay within a lane so one lane or one line could stay uncorrupted because the other line was already corrupted. And so there wasn't to be a mixture. There wasn't to be a mixture. And so they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years here the emphasis is, is that man, you're rising up into a position or into an authority which you do not have. You act as if you are God. It's the same thing that Satan deceived Eve with by saying, that's not what God said, right? God told, if you eat of that tree, you'll be God. You'll be like God. And that is always at the core center of man's problem is that man wants to be God. Man wants the authority. They don't want to stay in their lane. And so God is saying that the very spirit that I gave you, that gave you life because you're flesh, you're created, that that will not always remain. That will not always remain that you're going to be flesh and blood and receive the benefit of the power of his spirit that animates life in all of creation. That's what was taking place in Genesis at the creation is that man didn't become a living soul until the spirit breathed into him life, gave him life, animated the very creation. Because if God takes away that breath of life, what happens? They return back to dust. So God is reminding mankind and humanity that you're not following the creative order. You're not following the covenant design of what marriage was to demonstrate and to show why I set it apart for a very specific way in order for my people, for the seed of the woman to come in an uncorrupted position. And But we're going to see that that is a losing battle, if you will, because what we're going to learn about here is that if man was left to themselves, what would they do with God's goodness and being created by God? They would continue into a direction of wickedness and evil. They would progress into wickedness. And if God allowed man to stay 900 years old, right, as all those uh, generations that came before, that would be the end result of 900-year-old people having children that have now populated the entire world, and they're only going to progress into wickedness. 
So God shrinks, shortens the time, the time in which they can devolve down into their wicked estate. All this is very parallelism to what happened in the garden. That when man sinned against God, and they should have received the judgment. They should have received right then the eternal death. And if they would have ate of the tree of life in that state of death, they would have remained dead. But God, out of his goodness, cast them out of the garden, puts them under the curse, the toil, until the time of the Redeemer comes. Until the time of the Redeemer comes. And the whole story of all the generations that go from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David and to Jesus Christ is the coming of the Redeemer in the line of the woman. The line of the woman. So it's a very powerful story that we're seeing, a powerful account. But it's also a humbling account. Because if we are left to ourselves, if mankind is left to ourselves, we will go towards evil and wickedness every time. The word of God here is not saying that we saw the cultivation of mankind. I'm sure Stan talked about that in the cultural mandate about how God's uh, common grace comes into the world and, and, the, and society develops. And they develop in a good and beneficial way. But if you use it in the wrong way, in a sinful way, in the way that God did not design, then it's not good. It's not good. And so what's taking place here is they are using marriage for a way that God did not design. Did not design. And because they were marrying in this inner mixture, this line, the Lord says, I'm not going to give them life for this long anymore. I'm going to shorten the days to 120 years. And then you have this, this, this weird race that comes out of the blue. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, how did they come about? When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So there, what was the fruit and the product of this corrupted marriage covenant was this race of people called Nephilim were on the earth, and these, they were like giants. They, are, um, they would use the word as that there were giants in the land, okay? And so you, we have to kind of ask, well, what does that word giant mean? What does it mean that these people... Uh, were considered giants. Were they meaning they're big people? Were they tall people? Kind of like Goliath could have been. But here, the only description that we have is that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That word there, the men of renown, means they had a name. They made a name for themselves. And so in the line of Cain, right, all these people that were cultivating the world and the culture and building cities, they were gaining power, recognition, fame, if we go that place, if we say that it's more the mixture of the line of Seth and the line of Cain, but there, if we go to it's the uh, line of Seth intermixing with angels, then they were creating this supernatural race called Nephilim. And the answer is not really clear to us uh, in what is said here, but it creates a people 
in which are seeing themselves as mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. So it's so important that Moses had to focus that it was out of order. There's something that's not right. In fact, that word Nephilim is more the fallen. Okay, the fallen. So this race was a fallen race by virtue of their corrupting this covenant, this marriage covenant in which God was not pleased. And so the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That should humble us. That should keep us grounded to understand that if we're left to ourselves, the intention of our heart, we've heard that so many times in our life, right? Well, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Well, if it's not a heart that's seeking after God, don't follow it. Because if you follow that heart, you're only going to increase in evil and wickedness. And you will continue upon that path. The, these people were positioned in a way to know the development of God's goodness, his common grace. How it moved throughout generations and cultivated within a people the goodness of God but yet they turn their back on God and they did whatever they want, right? We know in Judges, it's going to say later on that people did whatever they saw was right in their own eyes because in the intention of the heart, this is like the go-to section for understanding total depravity. Total depravity meaning that because of sin, it has ruined every part of us. We are not... In, the, in as bad as we could be, but yet every faculty within us from the heart, the core inner being of us cannot please God. It will not seek God. It doesn't desire to understand God. It un- wants and desires to understand themselves in the place of God. And we'll see later in Tower of Babel is that very thing. I'm not going to go populate the whole world. I'm going to rise up into the heavens to get to the throne of God. There, Moses couldn't be any clearer of what was taking place is that man is saying, I want your throne, God. That mankind, humanity, left to themselves, the intent of their heart is not to know their God. It is to extinguish any of the sovereignty of God that God would have over all of creation and all the cultivating of society. And you may say, that seems harsh. But that's what this word is saying. It's saying that here, that there is no other intent of the heart that is goodness, that is thinking of goodness. Men have become so violent because if you're left to your humanity... For years upon years upon years upon years, you are going to uh, develop or cultivate the inward sin that is in you, is going to cultivate in you the thoughts of a heart that are only evil continually. Sitting around imagining everything that God has said not to do, that you would think, well, why not? Why can't I do that? That's what took place in the garden. 
is that the question came to Eve, well, why is it that you can't eat of the fruit? How many times do we do that in life? We're doing that in society now. Well, why do I have to be called a female? Why do I have to be called a male? That's just a social construct. That's questioning God's creative order because the intent of the heart is evil continually. It may be lying in a confusion or in a darkness, but it's lying certainly in the position of sin. Sin is going to work its way through us, inward, in us, unless God does a work. That God does a work. Because since we are totally depraved, our mind has been ruined. We can't think about God in the right way. We can't love God in the right way. And we certainly won't do to God in the right way. Unless there is some kind of redeeming work that comes in our life. And so he says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Well, we all believe that God doesn't change, right? There is no variableness in God. Anybody disagree with that? That's what the Word of God teaches us. There's no shadow of turning with God. But yet, when we think about the word regret, what are we thinking about? What are some of the things that you think about when you would hear that, hey, Ben regretted that he ever did this or he ever went on that run? What is that meaning of regret? What would you think it means? It almost seems to mean that I changed my mind. I, I wanted to do something, but as I was doing something, I said, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to change my mind and my way of understanding. Okay, And so here it almost seems that God is responding to man's sin by saying that man is thwarting what God is doing. Right? That the Lord is stepping back and saying, yep, sin's become so bad, I'm sorry I even made them. I'm sorry that I even created him because I couldn't stop what's taking place. I regret that this is what's taking place. But that is misunderstanding the character and the nature of God. The character and the nature of God is that his eternal purpose is perfect. It's unchangeable. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, react. It's not contingent upon what we do, right? He is sovereign over everything. So everything that he is purposing, he has purposed within his divine will to bring out the emphasis, okay? To make, I mean, this is a point of emphasis. This should make us pause very clearly here and give a sober pause that if God regretted making us, oh, wow, okay? That means that God can undo it. And God isn't just simply saying that I can undo it because I messed up. But he's saying, I have purposed this from the very beginning. That I'm not changing my will. I'm making my will very clear. That those that are going to abide with me and live with me must be holy. They cannot be wicked. They cannot live after the flesh, but they must live in the way that I have commanded. 
And so here God is saying the Lord has regretted that he made man on earth. It's a point of emphasis. We're going to hear language here that's going to be language that we can relate to. Because God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all his wisdom, being, and power. And so for us to say, does he have a heart? Does he have a feet? Does he have eyes? But yet that relates to us when we hear in a censorious way how God is responding to our sin. The impact is unbelievable. The impact should be so uh, intense upon us to say the Lord regretted making us. There is the moment. It's like if you didn't get it, how high sin had reached in humanity, then here's the message. God regrets making you. And that should sit upon the heart of every person in humanity to say, wow, we can get to that level. Yes, we can get to that level. And when we get to that level, we invite the judgment of God to come. That's the whole problem in this world to an extent is that the presumption, the presumption that God will not respond to our wickedness. He will wink at our wickedness and he'll sit there and say, oh, they're just being human. That's not God's answer to any of humanity's sin. And if we need to look and see how God answers sin, look at the cross. He doesn't wink at sin. He judges sin. And as he judges sin, because sin invites the judgment of the Lord. That's a message that many and we need to hear constantly. Constantly, because there is no hope in us. If there's hope in our ability to be good, to cultivate goodness out of ourselves, then we're not looking to where the only good is, and that is in Christ. That is in Christ alone. And so here, when the Lord regretted, there isn't, there isn't a variableness that was not in his decree. That makes sense? That there wasn't ever a design... Of, of change that was not already in the decree of God. Okay? That means that God isn't like us, where we're going about doing something, and we see something we don't like, and we pull back. God has done it eternally. He's already positioned himself in his eternal purpose. He's not like us, that he lives in a space uh, continuum of time. And that's where we have to kind of step out of ourselves and kind of get to the point of who God is. If we uh, make God into something that he's not, or if we try to relate with God that, some, that it's something that he's not, his nature. If God defies his nature, he's no longer God. Okay, yes. Well, if God makes a mistake, he's not God. So never give ground on that. He regretted it, but we're basing it on a human standard. God cannot be based on our standard, right? 
This is a point of literary device to bring out the emphasis of what took place at this moment. That there is an emphasis that sin had become so great that God, who had created all the world, is almost like he's going to rescind his creation, right? He's going to destroy his creation. In creation, he, invented, he created the invisible and the visible world, okay? And in this, he's going to destroy the invisible, the visible world except the humanity that he preserves in the ark, right? Because he's preserving the line of the woman. That's not outside. That's not God reacting. That was God's design from the beginning, okay? That was God's design from the beginning that he was going to judge sin. He was going to judge depravity. There was no doubt of what he has said from the beginning. When Saul rebelled against God. When what? Yep, King Saul. Through Samuel, the same words used. God regretted it. Regretted, yep. So, but it's not that God's making a mistake. We can never give ground to that because we're trying to understand why is it that we regret things? Because we've done something wrong. Is God admitting that he did something wrong? Are we willing to give that ground? The Hebrew, yep. Uh, Noah, Noah is going to comfort us. It's the same word as God regretted. What? That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's the same word. No, uh, it's the same one. It's comfort, Naham. yep. Yeah. So Naham. In 5.29. Yep. Uh, going to give us relief. Relief. Bring us relief. So it's the same word when it says God regretted. So one of the uses of what I guess a way you can interpret the word Naham is to be sorry or to console oneself or to be moved towards pity or moved towards compassion. And so I, I mean, putting these back to back, it seems like they're trying to make that connection for us. Yeah, there's a word a word play that's definitely going on. But it's 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 more to understand that God is so angry, he has to relieve his anger by rescinding his creation. That make more sense? But that's not him saying that he's mistaking what he did. That means that here he's brought out the creation of the world. Man's sin has gotten to a height of such a level that the only way to rid God of that discomfort is to rescind his creation. Okay? And so I also learned, and I'm sure you can correct me. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because I don't know who you were talking about. <laughs> but um, I learned like the first use of a connotation and and so if you follow if you follow a word through through scripture um, all of them kind of uh, point back to that first use does that make 
I think I think we miss the point a little bit if we don't understand in in the position that God is. He's about to wipe out creation, so bringing relief in the world is not the emphasis of what He's pointing to. He's talking about I'm angry, not me. God's angry. God's wrath or anger is boiling up, and so it will only remain unless He assuades that wrath, that anger, that relief. And the way that he's going to bring relief is to rescind his creation, right? He's going to suspend common grace, bring the world to an end to recreate creation. Because that's what happens in Noah, in the ark. No, it's never making a mistake. Go ahead, sorry. That's right. Yeah. So don't always we don't always think that God's movement is always going. He's going to bring glory through salvation and through judgment. Okay, He will be glorified, and so we are seeing here that God is saying that all the goodness, everything that was pointed to you and pointing you in the direction of my goodness, He's now going to rescind it. Okay? He's going to pull it back in all of creation where we should have looked at creation to say, wow, look at the God who created us. But that's not what mankind did. They took the creation and ruined it because they abused it and used it for themselves. If you're the creator, if you're God, and you're the creator and that's taking place, the anger that is going to rise up against that which has defiled, that which God has made as good. And in fact, when he made mankind, he said it was very good. There was an emphasis of goodness, that it was at the height of God's goodness, and mankind corrupted it and reached to the height of evil. And then at the very end of this text, it's going to say that God, right, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We got a little long here, I guess. Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There is that same, that same, uh, same wording of that relief that's going to come to Noah, right, to humanity. That if God is so angry against all of humanity and all of his creation that he's going to suspend common grace and rescind all of creation, there's no hope. But finding grace or finding favor in the eyes of the Lord, we can have hope. We can have hope. It's almost a replay of what took place in Genesis when men, man sinned against God. They should have been destroyed and wiped from the face of the earth. But God shows grace by saying, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. 
And here it's the same. Here's the judgment that should have came to even humanity. But yet God is preserving his purpose, his promise of sending a redeemer by saying that Noah, you have found favor in my eyes, right? Okay. So we have been talking about God regretting, the Lord regretting. So maybe, yeah, so that one was a thorny issue. And it's not that the Lord was making a mistake, but that the Lord and his purpose and his will wasn't like outside of his, his, his purpose from the beginning. It was always there, right? And it was to bring the emphasis to mankind of the height of the sin that they had reached, that God will rescind all of creation to relieve himself of his anger.